Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Thanks for joining me for the second part of our interview with Andrew Parker. In this installment, we will cover his take on digital healthcare and education and why they are untapped sectors with great potential, types of startups and or business models that work well with data-centric companies, if he thinks VCs should use data and algorithms to become better investors, Andrew's take on the Jobs Act, Title III, why he'd like to see a debate between investors that prefer the user-based growth hack startups versus those that prefer early monetization, and we'll wrap up with key takeaways and a tip of the week. Here's part two of the interview with Andrew Parker on data algorithms as a competitive advantage. So you've written about your investments in the digital healthcare and education markets. Um, Where do you see the future of these sectors and what areas are still potentially untapped? Well, I think both of these segments of, of the IT market are still in early innings because historically, both of these markets have been subjected to gatekeepers. So like in the, in the case of healthcare, there is some government regulation in terms of what you can or cannot do with data. This manifests itself largely in HIPAA compliance. And then also the IT departments inside a hospital, you know, have some say about, all right, you're going to be, you know, using health related data to try and say, you know, improve patient outcomes or something like that. You know, you have to pitch a CIO inside a hospital top down. Can't just be like a random researcher or surgeon or whatever pulling you in from the bottom up. Uh, and then two, in in education, if you want to get massive penetration for uh, education-based technology, you know, you're at some point going to have to talk to school districts or at least individual decision makers within schools to help kind of push your product out that way. You can do a better job of bottom-up innovation in education where you get teachers to be your vector for growth. Sure. But I just think if you want to acquire users in large bunches, especially if you're hoping that the school will be a source of monetization for you, a uh, source of revenue for you, then I think that top-down sales a little bit inevitable. And so, you know, because both of these industries had gatekeepers historically, I think that it's just starting to get interesting in both of those categories because these gatekeepers have been a little bit, you know, lagging indicators in in tech adoption, but they're ready. I heard some statistic that 10 years ago, something like, you know, 3% of public schools in the U.S. 
had really great broadband penetration. And now that number is more like 80%. That's a really big deal that like the schools are now ready to be using, you know, high speed internet in order to maybe replace a textbook with a a digital learning curriculum or something like that. Um, There is some market timing to both of those segments that you identified that are just really starting to warm up right now. Yeah, I've read a little bit about uh, your investments and different sectors that you invest in. Are there specific sectors that you look at for algorithm-based startups and or are there specific business models, let's say, SaaS, for instance, so subscription-based software business models that have to be in place in order for you to to take a a um, hard look. Yeah, you know, if if you're selling B two B, I do think SaaS lends itself nicely to an algorithmic-based business. If you know you really have found some way to compound your value through the data that you acquire. Meaning, as you get more and more data, the company becomes increasingly more valuable. And, and the reason why those two go hand in hand nicely is. You know, in the days of like the box software era where you'd you know walk over to Best Buy and, and plunk down fifty dollars for you know the newest version of TurboTax or something like that, <laughs> and it wasn't really like an internet enabled product. There wasn't a way in which you know the data was improving the experience for all users in a compounding way. Now I do think there is something to like, you know, as more people use TurboTax, I'm sure the product got better. But I think that's like a natural evolution of just you know kind of product design iteration. I'm not sure that millions of tax returns ended up having the same impact that, say, you know, the millions of or now billions of, of Google search results has improved Google. And so the reason why SaaS works really well there is because the innovation on the product and the value from the product doesn't stop when the code is done being written. Instead, it continues to get better as the data gets better. So it makes sense that you'd be subscribing to a service that is fed by that data. And it's just it's a very natural way in in terms of continuing the, um, the contract value with a customer, you know, continuing to increase that over time through you know, monthly or, or yearly subscription revenue because you're constantly increasing the value that you're providing to the end consumer. Yeah, certainly your point earlier about data exhaust. You know, without SaaS, how do you really collect all of that, that exhaust in real time if you, have a, if you have a software product, whereas now with SaaS, you... You can collect that from the very beginning. Yeah, that's right. That's that's absolutely right, and that's a big part of the jump. That you know, as we move to connected uh, applications, and as we moved a lot of the application layer logic into the cloud. Any thoughts on if investors should use data and/or their own algorithms to better assess startups, either pre or post investment? Yeah, you know, it's funny. We were we were talking about this recently at a, a Spark offsite uh, amongst our, our partners here. And uh, where I, I personally came down on this topic is I am definitely a, a big believer in the disruption of VC. I think it would be really naive of me to assume that I'm going to invest in wildly disruptive, interesting businesses and other industries, but no, it'll never happen in VC. Like that doesn't make any sense, right? Like, of course, ultimately VC, as we know it today, will get disrupted. And I would love to invest in those companies that are doing that disruption. We have made an investment in one company that leverages crowdfunding to date called Funders Club, specifically for for VC-backed startups. And then we have another investment in another company that leverages crowdfunding through an equity relationship for video games uh, called FIG. So we are thinking about this. We are putting our money where our mouth is. 
But I think those are a little bit more business model innovations than they are algorithmic innovations. And the distinction here is important because I think VC today is a data sparse problem, meaning that the number of startups that emerge during you know, any given year in, I think, uh, the modern VC ecosystem is a couple thousand. And a database of all of these companies and all of their founders and all the products that they've built and the market statistics and their performance, stuff like that, if you took all of that and put it in one big table, I bet that whole table would fit in like probably like a, a single gig of RAM. So it's not like a big data problem. Right. right. You know, big right. data is when you're talking about like terabytes of information, you're like drinking from the fire hose or whatever. And <laughs> yeah. it doesn't have to be big data in order for an algorithm to innovate here. But when it's not big data, you know, humans can still kind of parse their way through it. So there are definitely some other firms doing some really cool algorithmic innovation. I know Google Ventures in particular has built something crazy over there where like they have acquired a bunch of different data sets and and feed that into some model that you know helps them figure out which startups they should be focusing on or when to talk to certain companies in their fundraising life cycle. But I think the value, the advantage of getting there is is maybe it's helping them on the filtering front. You know, it's taking that university that universe of a thousand companies and reducing it down to like a hundred. So there's there's value in there. I'm not trying to say there isn't. It's just not as impactful as you know, say Google helping you parse between the billions of websites out there. Right. We had sort of an odd experience recently. We were leading an investment, uh, syndicating it on AngelList for a startup. And, uh, um, of course, they had to create an AngelList profile. So this is the first time they'd created a profile on AngelList. And the very next day, they got contacted by two of the biggest name VCs uh, in the Bay Area for a meeting. And um, at first, I was shocked like about the timing of it. But then I realized that after they created that profile, their data must have gotten picked up by, by some of the data outlets in the VC space and, and set off a flag or set off a signal to some folks that wanted to connect with them. So <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Wow. Well, you know, I, I think Angelus is very much a part of that kind of disruption of the VC ecosystem. And, and I think what they're building there is super interesting. So I'm glad that you're um, playing at that edge and participating in, in that ecosystem. But it sounds like other people have seen that as a leading signal too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Fortunately, we still got the round. Thank God. So, Andrew, any final thoughts or tips on data and, and or algorithms, whether it be for investors or entrepreneurs? No, I, I think that your questions are great. Yeah, I think you did a really good job of kind of you know, teasing out this idea and, and I've had a lot of fun with it. Can you talk about some of the things you're currently up to and most focused on over at Spark Capital? Yeah, I think it's just three categories, uh, VR, drones, uh, around Slack. I, you know, you, you brought up also digital healthcare and education. Those are two sectors where I'm intensely focused and, and really want to find more opportunities. If we could address any topic in venture, what topic do you think should be addressed and who would you like to hear speak about it? I like that there's kind of two different types of VCs out there, but or you, you can you can split VCs into two buckets. There's a bunch of folks where I would count myself as a member of the camp where they think that the hardest thing a startup is going to do during their life is just matter in the minds of end consumers. And so getting to scale with users and getting users to love you, because that's so difficult, you might as well just do it first. And so people going for scale early in ways that aren't yet economically viable, like the business model isn't baked, but there's just faith that it will get there because that's an easier problem to solve. 
That's one set of VCs. And I think there's another set of VCs out there that really want to be able to analyze a company on a spreadsheet, convince themselves that you know it's gross margin positive early in the life of a company, and really want to focus on business models that are going to work. And um, you know, it might be interesting if you just bring in or try and foster a conversation between these two sides. If you could find VCs that really raise their hand as saying, yes, I'm a part of this camp or yes, I'm a part of that camp and, and seeing how they interact or, or trying to figure out what the core of that debate really is. That's a contrast that I see a bunch in VC and, and it's one that I don't think there is a right answer. You know, you might just get two people arguing over exactly what is the right shade of fuchsia. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, if you're willing to endure that, I, I think it actually could be a pretty interesting conversation. It's a really good question. I just read an article from Matt Maloney, uh, CEO of Grubhub, about why DoorDash and Postmates are going to fail. Because um, Grubhub was sort of built with this this core economic model that was viable from the start, whereas he sees all these other on-demand delivery startups spring up that are growth hacking and don't really have the economics down. I remember that. You know, I thought that was a really good counterpoint from Sarah Lacey on that, on Pando. It's worth a read if you found Matt's take interesting. And I think even using that as the core of the debate could foster an interesting conversation. I would say, though, that you know, when, when you're talking about DoorDash and Postmates, you're talking about companies that have figured out their unit economics, right? You know, their, their services are not inexpensive. And so because of that, you know, they are commercially viable I think the real interesting contrast in my mind is when you look at a startup like, you know, Twitter or Facebook, you know, these these amazing end consumer experiences that for years went mostly unmonetized. I mean, there might have been revenue experiments or something like that, but the revenue growth didn't really come in large bunches until they, you know, hired a CRO and really intensely focused on it, knowing that they had already solved the hardest problem, which is just being a part of the zeitgeist, being relevant in consumers' minds in a big way. There's a bunch of VCs that are willing to take that bet and, you know, fund something without a business model for a long time, but then there's a bunch that really are uncomfortable with that. And uh, I think that could make an interesting conversation. Any quick thoughts on Title Three and what it might mean for the startup fundraising landscape? Yeah. Well, you know, um, I'm, I'm generally very liberal. And so what I'm going to say, I think, is a little bit out of character for myself. But I think on this one particular issue, I'm fairly libertarian, meaning like I don't think that we should necessarily be controlling people's access to invest in startups if they want to based solely on their you know net worth or whatever. So I think it's really interesting that folks that didn't previously meet these qualifications around accreditation can now invest in startups. And it's not my job to protect them. I'm sure it is someone's job to protect them. And I hope they do a good job of protecting them. But like, <laughs> you know, it's not mine. So so good luck to them. I think what the impacts for the startup ecosystem will be that, you know, the direct investing from a larger swath of, of retail investors will lead to um, more seed stage companies getting funded. They could also be investing in later stage rounds or whatever, but I just think on a dollar per impact basis, I think that's where we're going to see the biggest boost come from is at the seed stage because, you know, the, the dentist in Des Moines, Iowa can actually get access to some material ownership in a company if they're willing to play at that stage, whereas they're investing a couple thousand dollars in 
in Uber or something like that. I, I just don't think it makes a difference in how Uber is going to execute or not, right? It's not right. going to like suddenly unlock millions of dollars of liquidity that they didn't otherwise have access to. Like they have no shortage of ability to fundraise. So not much is going to change there. But it seeds, I think you'll, you'll see some move. And so that means that the top of the funnel will then become larger for later stage investors um, because there will be more seeds kind of earlier in the funnel. This isn't necessarily a bad thing. I, I think it would be hard to argue that there is such thing as, as too much seed capital because if you think about like how innovation works, it's often through quick iterations and like constantly trying new ideas. And if there was only a fixed amount of you know, seed capital available to all companies, you know, you'd be limiting the degree to which you could iterate. And uh, so you know, I'm, I'm glad to see that this is going to happen. I, I think it's a very interesting phenomenon and I'm delighted. Great. And finally, just to wrap up, Andrew, what's the best way for listeners to connect with you? Yeah, so uh, I have a blog, thegongshow.tumblr.com. You can certainly follow me there. Uh, you should follow me on Twitter, which is just at Andrew Parker. Pretty easy to find. And then if you want to correspond with me privately, I publish my email address on my website, both on the Spark website and also on my personal website. So I just try and make myself as easy to reach as possible and, and feel free to contact me there. Well, Andrew, been a big fan of your blog for for a long time and uh, really appreciate you carving out the time and joining us here today. Oh, hey, thank you so much for taking the time. This is a real pleasure and uh, I appreciate the opportunity. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to PacWest.com to learn more. That episode was just packed full of information. Thanks so much to Andrew for doing it. Let's recap the key takeaways. And on this installment of key takeaways, I'm going to review four different takeaways. The first one is on evaluating a technical founder's expertise. Andrew said that he assesses technical founders by treating them like a black box. One way he does this is to look at the outcome of their work. What is the raw product they've produced? If there is value in the algorithm, that should be transparent in the product execution. Another method is to assess one's thought leadership in code. A primary way to evaluate this is by checking GitHub to see the frequency of their published code and how well it's reviewed and cited by other coders. And Andrew's last point here is that he is largely language and stack agnostic. 
He said that the best computer scientists are strongly rooted in programming paradigms that transcend all languages. So if they're really good, they're going to be able to pick up the language they need for the task at hand. Key takeaway number two is called data as a competitive advantage during early stage startup assessment. During early stage review, Andrew first asks, is the startup creating a new market or entering an existing one? If it's the creation of a new market, it's not clear how data is going to help. There must be imagination, faith, and a compelling founder vision, a great founder to be able to evangelize that vision, and an audience that believes in the vision. And here Andrew said that the audience doesn't have to be the customer. The audience could be the investors or even the startup employees. I hadn't thought of this point before, but I think it's a great one that talking to the startup's employees and not just the founders prior to an investment can give some insight on how much others also believe and are passionate about the vision. Key takeaway number three is called public algorithms and private source data. On this point, Andrew encourages companies to publish what they're doing openly. He's found that the more you give away, the more you get back. And by publishing an algorithm open source, others will contribute to it and make the idea better faster. And if the source data itself remains proprietary while the community is helping improve the algorithm, then the startup's competitive advantage compounds. Here he cited examples including Google's publishing of their machine learning framework TensorFlow while retaining the source data around searches and other web activity in their data archive. All right, the fourth and final takeaway is called Continuous Feedback Loop of SaaS. In the era of shelfware, most software wasn't internet-enabled and didn't have a method for improving user experience based on collective experience of other users. This is why SaaS works so well for data and algorithm-focused startups, because both the value the product delivers and the innovation on the product side doesn't stop upon launch. Rather, after launch, the product can increase in value at a compounding rate. And this also allows the startup to increase both the top line and bottom line of the business over time by increasing the price per month of the SaaS product. If they are in fact increasing the value of the product, this is realistic. Recall the interview with Mamoon Hamid on SaaS investing, where we talked about net new MRR. One component of this metric is expansion MRR, more dollars per month generated for existing customers. Whether expansion MRR is being driven by new feature sets, enhanced capabilities, or just a better core product offering, it's clear that the compounding value of data can be a force multiplier. Okay, let's wrap up with a tip of the week, and this week's tip is called Data as a Network Effect. We all talk about sources of defensibility. How is a startup going to retain its competitive advantage for the long term? Why can't someone else just copy an idea? There are a number of sources of defensibility, and one frequently cited by Union Square Ventures and mentioned by Andrew today is the network effect. There are even a few different types of network effects. Consider for a second Facebook. Facebook is not an entirely complicated technology company. Yet, it's not an idea that can be readily copied. Why is that? Because even if a better version of Facebook was launched tomorrow, the users are not going to jump ship for a new network. Their pictures, conversations, 
and most importantly, friend relationships exist with long history in Facebook. Today, we discussed how data can function as a network effect. Andrew said, as startups get more data, the value of the startup starts to compound, and the way the data is processed creates more value than the sum of the data itself. Recall from the episode with Leo Polovitz, where he cited the example of Netflix. While Netflix built value based on their product offering, delivering media in a faster, easier, and more informative way to consumers, they can now defend it via the value created from their vast amount of data. So while Netflix does not have a network effect based on direct friend relationships between users, they do have an indirect user-based network effect from the star reviews and ratings. Imagine a future of ubiquitous data on preferences. Not just where a tech company can tell you which movies you're going to like, but one that can tell you which car to buy, which restaurants to go to, which meal on the menu you'll like best, which articles to read, which apps to download, and what podcasts to listen to. While the world is in a constant state of change, it's even conceivable that a smart machine with access to incredible amounts of data will be able to predict what a 20-year-old's preferences will be when they are 30, 40, or 50 years old. The examples of advances from big data are limitless. And as long as there are large tech companies developing new algorithms, machine learning, and holding the keys to the source data, our network effect dependence on them will only increase. All right, that's it for today. Head over to thefullratchet.net for guest links, show notes, and all of the takeaways on today's show. I hope your new year has started off great. Feel free to ping me anytime. I'm Nick at fullratchet.net and look forward to next week's episode with Christine Sai of 500 Startups. Until then, overprepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for listening.